Welcome to episode 99 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What is going on? Not much, Jesse. I'm just enjoying another Lord's Day. Looking forward to some podcasting action tonight. Speaking of podcasting, we are just one episode away from the big 100. I know. I feel like we've been chasing two thieves for as long as I can remember, and we can never catch up. Even when they took that break, we still didn't catch up. We're coming for you, two thieves. We are. Speaking of which, do you have some affirmations? I do. This week? I do. In case you haven't heard, our good friends over at the Two Thieves podcast uh, crossed into triple digits for their episode numbers. So we are so thrilled to have them as part of the network. Um, They had a great kind of like looking back episode retrospective of their hundred episodes. And it was just really good to listen to sort of how they've developed. And, you know, they're kind of self-deprecating and they don't really need to be like, Justin's always saying that they're like intellectually, they don't fit with our network, but these two guys are a lot sharper than I think they give themselves credit for. They're absolutely on point. I'm glad they hit the century mark. Yeah. They did call me uh, what was it? A bald little theological dictionary. (laughs) So I'm not sure whether to be flattered or insulted, but I'm going to go with flattered on that one. (laughs) Haven't you been called out on almost every podcast that's on the network in some kind of weird way? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've been called worse things than a bald little theological dictionary. So, so yeah, it was a term of endearment. So with that, I'm going to get that like tattooed on my arm, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I like that. I'm just really hoping that no bear cubs come out of the woods and take those guys down. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not calling down curses on them for it. So I think we're okay. All right. Fair enough. What about you? What are you affirming? So this week I'm affirming this. It's a little tiny thing. It's probably going to add at most marginal value to your life, but it's fun. So I'm going to affirm it. Are you familiar with informed delivery? I am not. So the U S postal service does this thing where you can just sign up for free online, throw in your information and you get vetted. And then they will basically send you via email a little note that shows all the scanned mail that's coming into your mailbox. So it's a bit like stocking your own mail. And I don't know if there's a lot of uses for this, but it's just kind of fun to know what's coming. It might be interesting where I live to see how long it takes them for when the mail receipt is received at the post office to when it actually shows up in my mailbox. Oh, you should do this then. Because I feel like sometimes I think it's, it, I, I don't know, have any real good reason to think this, but I feel like it's probably longer than I would hope for the mail to get from the post office to here. It probably is in some rural areas. Yeah. So this is definitely something you should check out. I will. It's called informed delivery. Informed delivery. Just go to usps.gov and you can set the whole thing up. So it, okay. it's a little bit depressing if all you're getting is bills and it only scans the stuff that's like uniquely sent to you. So bulk right. mail isn't included in part of that. That would be terrible. But it is kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. That would be lame if it was like you received 37 pieces of bulk mail today. <laughs> I hardly, so my wife and I always complain that it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a walk to our mailbox yeah. and that it's never worth it because there's nothing ever good in the physical mail anymore. So we always hedge on that. And basically I'm sure our mailman thinks we're perpetually away because sometimes we'll go 
like five days and we'll ask each other like did you check the mail and we'll both be like what do you think <laughs> and then we'll let it go like for a long period of time we open it up and it's just like packed full of junk mail i suppose because you have to walk like all the way down to the like entrance to your apartment complex don't you yeah i mean it's not a far walk That's it's lame. just we're lazy and there's not a lot of incentive at the end yeah we're lazy this is the guy that ran like an, a miscellaneous amount of miles on vacation because he just he got lost and decided to keep running yeah lazy that's what that i was would a, use to describe you that was out of like sheer fear i was yeah. like i will never see my family ever again i need to get back we would have sent out the search party and in fact the day before they did send out the search fact, party we did, so. yeah somebody did have to come and rescue me so to speak so yeah so before that gets out of hand um you got any denials so i am denying broken microphones and the reason I'm denying this is today here, here. Today in church, dad's microphone, the battery was dying in his wireless mic pack. And so it was like this weird sound in the background for the entire service. And you could tell, <laughs> I feel bad, but you could tell that everybody was distracted by it because you'd have like, it would have like a particular buzz and you'd see like everybody's head would be swiveling around, like trying to listen to it. And Ashley's writing me notes, trying to figure out what it is. And I finally was like, we're not going to fix it. So I, I wrote back, I was like, maybe we're picking up alien radio signals, but it was like, <laughs> It was like an old, sounded like an old school modem or something like that. What's that movie with the woman whose last name is Foster where they're like listening it's called for Signal. aliens? Signal. No. Yeah, there we go. Is it Signal? I don't, I don't know think what it it's is. Signal. Whatever. I know what movie you're talking about though. Yeah. It's just like they hear the sound. They're like, it's, then they can decode it and it's some yeah. crazy, but isn't that, I think the end of that movie is, movie is like super underwhelming as I recall. Yeah. I think she like travels back back in time to herself i don't know it's something it was kind of like, like a, it was kind of like a precursor to that movie interstellar did you see that yeah yes that movie was trippy yeah that movie was pretty trippy yeah, yeah. for sure so i was going to ask you to give an impression of the mic so i'm glad you did that yeah. just on your own volition right of there of course yeah it was bad. i think every i did manage to <laughs> We just had one of those, like, meet cute moments. I did manage, uh, with all of the audio engineering that I've learned doing this podcast, I actually managed to clean up the audio pretty well for the pot or for the sermon audio. So I'll have to go back and listen to it since I was so distracted by the weird sound the whole time that I didn't. You can see in my notes where, from the sermon, where the audio started going weird because, like, my notes all of a sudden stop and it's like, I just, like, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't focus at all. I felt, I felt bad because like people in the service were legitimately distracted, but like, what are you going to do? It right. happens. If you attend a church with a sound system, no doubt you got a story yeah. or something like that happening. Oh yeah, And for it just sure. being insane. And it's the same thing that's happened even in our church recently where like a buzz kicked on about like three quarters of the way through the pastor's sermon. Yeah. And it, it's one of those things where everybody's looking at each other. He's looking at us. We're looking at him. We're all like, we can hear it. And yeah, yeah, it's distracting, but there's nothing we can do about it yeah. right now. Well, and you know, but the the um, the soundboard is actually up front in the church behind the pulpit. So there was there was no way I was going up. If it was like a so regular sound system, I would have like played around with it trying to find it and but there was just nothing that could be done. So I would have preferred that you army crawled your way up there. Yeah, just shove dad right out of the pulpit be like, "Hold on a second. <laughs> but yeah. What about you? What are you denying? Oh, churches, not churches. Sorry, that came right <laughs> at the end of your denial question. So this is, um, I don't know if this is going to be unpopular or not. So you have to help me out if my perspective is totally off. 
I know this is a bit hipster. I know it's somewhat in vogue, but I have got to come out and straight up deny the deep V t-shirt. Yeah. We don't need we don't need those capital V's. No. Keep it lowercase or crew. No, I'm with you, man. There was a I had a friend in seminary that would wear it and it was like it would come down like to the bottom of his sternum. And you're like, dude, just I like I wanted to walk up to him and like pull the V together and staple it together. I never did, uh, but no, I'm with you. Does that qualify like Matthew 13 style? It might. It, it qualifies uh, slap you in the face style. I don't know if there's a verse for that, but it's, yeah. Don't do not do it. Just don't do it. Yeah, don't let a brother or sister, but especially don't let a brother wear the deep V. Yeah. Help him out. Confront that. Bring a friend. Get your elders involved because yeah. you need to take that thing off. I feel like we, I would we, rather have someone just walk around without their shirt on than to wear the deep V. That's a good call because it's just the amount, awkward amount and shape of fabric. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah just, I mean, I, obviously I don't want to see that like in the workplace, but if I guess if you're out and about, take your shirt off instead. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. This has got weird. If you're one of our listeners and you um, wear a deep V and we've offended you, you can just go ahead and unsubscribe right now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm just kidding. We love you. We just want you to wear clothing that's not ridiculous. So you can head over to reformedapparel.com yes. and buy a t-shirt with a legitimate neckline that also has our faces plastered on it. Yes. Yeah. Help everybody to not stumble. And also, we don't need to see that, that chest hair, we that don't. hamburger meat. No. Keep that what, to yourself. Although, if you are one of those people... I would like to see someone who shaves just the V in their chest. <laughs> that would be okay with me. I, I would give you props for effort on that one. Wait, wait, wait. So you're okay as long as that part portion is shaved? Yeah, I think, I mean, the the deep V is weird, but I think mostly it's the hair. Like, there's something weird to me when someone has, like, a ton of chest hair, like, popping out of the top of their shirt. Right. If they're shaved and it's, like, smooth, then it's not as disruptive to me. <laughs> like that the word you used was disruptive yeah i i don't know we we should probably like move into a theological topic at some point oh uh, that's great i thought what have we been doing so far this seems very theologically it relevant to me it could be yeah we could talk about modesty yeah there we go which is not actually what we're talking about not tonight. even a little bit no there is a question though that i think perennially comes up among christians and probably every christian whatever tradition you're involved in has had to wrestle with and that's, how do we know that we're saved? And yeah. then beyond that, how do we know that we cannot lose our salvation? And so I was having one of those conversations this week, just chatting with some people. And for whatever reason, I was just reminded that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is, I think, really undervalued. Maybe historically, but perhaps especially now. It's kind of like the Calvinistic caboose of like the yeah. TULIP acronym. And sometimes it feels like we just slap it on as an addendum without really thinking about its practical application. So I thought... Let's talk about the perseverance of the saints, not just like in a broad theological sense, but how it really gives us some practical underpinnings for how we live life day to day. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I think that's a great idea. So we'll have to do a little bit of technical work, but I think what we want to do is keep this real practical and keep this um, 
in the realm of how do you actually make use of this doctrine? How does this doctrine actually work? I mean, I don't remember which Puritan it was that defined theology as the, the science of living well. Um, but the, it's like the applied practical living of theology. But I think the perseverance of the saints, I think you're right. This is one of those doctrines that we, we know is there when we think about it, but we don't, we don't really utilize it all that much in terms of our practical piety. Yeah. I like how you said that. It's like this wonderful toolkit that I think could really bring us so much peace and comfort. That's a horrible metaphor. It's like a, it's like a lotion. No, 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 no. It's like, (laughs) it's like a deep V (laughs) t-shirt because we're in summer and we just talked about sunburn. It's like this. It's like when your soul is sunburned and you get that nice, cool aloe. It's like, it's soothing. It's comfortable. It's refreshing. And that's really what I think perseverance of the saints is. So let's start with some of that technical stuff. Like, so, so hit us with like your best technical definition of perseverance of the saints. So one thing that I think happens with reform folks is this is going to sound a little strange, but I think we sometimes, um, how do I phrase this? We overemphasize God's role in salvation in that we give him a role that's different than what the Bible uh, gives him. And sometimes we do this at odds with our own tradition. So it's, it's kind of vogue to say like, well, perseverance of the saints is okay, but really preservation of the saints is better. And there certainly is an element that we have to acknowledge that the perseverance of the saints is only possible because it's the Lord himself that is bringing about that perseverance. I mean, the Westminster confession says that explicitly, but nevertheless, it's important for us to remember that the perseverance of the saints, we persevere in the faith. Like it's not, it's not just that God is holding us up, but he's enabling us through the sanctification of his spirit He's enabling us to actually run the race and to to run the race and finish the race. It's not as though God drags us across the finish line. He enables us to run. So I think sometimes in our zeal to give God all of the credit, we actually diminish what he's doing in our lives in order to try to make it seem like we have no role in this. But the fact is the Reformed tradition has always affirmed that the good works that result from the sanctification of the Spirit, we we are the ones doing the good work, even though it's there, it's empowered by the Spirit. And perseverance is one of those good works. So the way that I would define perseverance of the saints is is essentially with that race metaphor, right? That's what Paul uses is he says, I press on to the goal, not because I have yet claimed it, but because of Christ Jesus, who has claimed me. So Christ Jesus has, Christ Jesus has claimed those that the father has elected. And it it would be um, unthinkable to think that anyone who Christ has saved somehow becomes unsaved or will not ultimately come to salvation, to final salvation, to the goal, to the end of the race and cross that finish line. But it's important for us not to underemphasize the fact that, you know, this goes, it seems like we cannot escape the John Piper controversy. And I'm not trying to come back to it, but it seems like we forget the fact that the race still has to be run, right? There's still a finish line that we have to cross and we cross it by the power of the spirit, but we still cross it. Does that make sense? So the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints essentially says anyone in whom the spirit is who has started the race will ultimately finish the race. 
Right. Now, now that you know, there's fits and starts. Sometimes you take a step back. Sometimes you feel like you're not on the right track. But ultimately, anyone who God has chosen to start the race will finish the race. Right. You can go to Romans eight. All those whom God foreknew, He predestined, and those He predestined, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. Right. So it's this it's this progress towards glorification that is a necessary conclusion because of God's decree of election and salvation. But there's still this element that the saints are the ones who are moving along this course and we're moving along this course according to our wills, because our wills have been transformed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Right. That's the critical part, that those who are the elect are kept in faith by the power of God, and thus they're going to persevere to the end. But I like what you were saying there with the race, because we got to keep our legs moving. Right, exactly. And that's something that we'll want to do, but ultimately the power, the empowerment comes from God himself. This doctrine doesn't mean that all those who merely like just appear to have faith, you know, somebody who said a certain prayer or walked down the church aisle or joined a church or were baptized, it doesn't mean that all those will be kept by God and will therefore persevere to the end because there are many professing Christians who trust still, I think, in their own works, like their goodness, their merits for their salvation. And so that's exhausting. And so later yeah. on, there are going to be people who become discouraged with that and decide to leave the faith and no longer be a Christian. And that's going to reveal a lack of genuine faith in Jesus' righteousness as the means of reconciliation with God. So it's because I'm sure that's going to come up in terms of talking about, well, well why do some people fall away? And we can talk about that right. um, later. But I think what you said was was right on. So like, how do we understand this perseverance to work in our lives then if it's both like because i don't think what we're saying necessarily is that it's it's this is a synergistic process but somebody's going to ask are we talking about synergy here are we talking about some kind of monergistic will yeah so i don't know that moner i mean i'm kind of with mike horton that monergism strictly speaking the difference between monergism and synergism sort of falls apart once you get past really regeneration even justification strictly speaking we talking about monergism versus synergism sort of gets a little weird and you and i have been really specific that if we were forced to say one way or another in reference to sanctification that sanctification is a work of god right it's a work of god that we are we are the ones being worked upon not the ones who are doing the work. And I think perseverance in some senses is the same. It's the same thing that perseverance is brought about by the will of God and the, um, the acts of the spirit, but we still have to engage in that work. So before we move on, maybe I just want to read chapter 17 of the Westminster confession. It's only three points, but I think it's important for us to get this language out there because we always want to be rooting ourselves to something that is broader than us in terms of, you know, ecclesiological importance. So article one says they whom God has accepted in his beloved effectually called and sanctified by his spirit can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Article 2, this perseverance of the saints depends not on their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy and merit of the intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which arise also the certainty and infallibility thereof. So just to unpack that, it's saying that the our perseverance does not depend on us, right? right. We don't persevere because we have decided to persevere. 
we persevere because God has decreed that we will be saved, that God loves us, that Christ's intercession is effective, that he's not praying with no, without being answered, that the spirit is doing his work, that God has planted a seed of righteousness within us, and the covenant of grace is secure. So all of those things culminate in the fact that the, our perseverance certainly and infallibly follows. So it never fails that a person that God has chosen will ultimately come to salvation. And this is even more than some of the other things we might land upon. This right here is the singular reformed distinctive. Only the reformed believe this. There are those that say, you know, once saved, always saved. They don't believe that that's a covenantal obligation. It's more like God is obligated by some sort of magic words that you said, right? Lutherans deny this. Roman Catholics, by and large, you know, there are some that would would affirm something similar to this, but Roman Catholics deny this. Lutherans deny this. Arminians obviously deny this. General evangelicals who end up mostly being Arminians, but don't want to call themselves Arminians, deny this. So this really is the core distinctive. It's not total depravity. It's not even even really limited atonement, you know, it's not irresistible grace. All of those things find similar or the same doctrines in other traditions, but perseverance of the saints really is the core reform distinctive. I'm glad you went to the WCF, which by the way, in our podcast, all roads lead to the scripture and the WCF. Yes. Always. Yeah. Come at me, Westminster. And the beautiful thing about chapter 17 is there is a little bit of nuance there that really differentiates and draws out a particular question. It's kind of implied, but I think it's really relevant for our current environment because the question with respect to the doctrine of perseverance is not whether those who have obtained a true saving faith could not, if left to themselves, lose it again by their own faults or sins. It's not whether sometimes all the activity or the boldness and the comfort of faith actually ceases. And it's not whether faith itself sometimes goes into hiding under the cares of life. The question really is whether God continues to uphold and complete the work of grace he has begun, or whether he sometimes permits it to be totally ruined by the power of sin. That's right. the important question. Yeah. I think that's what everybody wants to have answered when they're they're longing for an answer to, if I'm sa- once saved, am I always saved? And what does that mean? So the that chapter 17 really focuses our attention on the fact that perseverance is not an activity of the human person, but it is a gift from God. He's watching over it. He's seeing to it as the work of grace and that it's continued and completed. The beauty of that, though, is that God does not do this apart from believers, but he's doing it through them. And so in regeneration and faith, he's granting a life that is by nature eternal. And there's, there's something in there that's really special. It's probably worth unpacking, but that in the, the act of saving and justifying, it's as if God is, is grabbing, clicking, grabbing, and, and bringing to the present this idea that eternal life begins now. And so yeah. he bestows all of the benefits of calling, justification, and glorification that are mutually and unbreakably connected. And so that's why I think this is kind of undervalued, because when we fail to appreciate that, we can run into all kinds of anxiety over what it means to be saved and secured. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that 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 is really important for us to think about from a soteriological perspective, is that, yes, we still have the first death, right? Revelation talks about the first and the second death. We right. still, unfortunately, have to face the first death. And there's a, that's a whole different question about why that is, but we still face physical death. Our souls, for the vast majority of all people throughout time, and I would say even the people who are alive when Christ returns, will still face the equivalent of death. 
right? Their souls will be, will be removed from their body for a time and there'll be this separation and reunification. But eternal life is ours now, right? When we are reborn, when we're regenerated, what's given to us is not just a new will, but a new life. Right. And that eternal life is what guarantees perseverance of the saints, not because of some legal obligation, but because the blessings of the covenant of grace, which Christ himself has merited for us, are applied to us in union with Christ. We are already seated with him in the heavenly places, right? We right. already have been given the life which Christ won on the cross. If we die a death like him in his on the cross, we live a life like him in his resurrection. That That's not saying some point in the future we will. Right now, here and now, we already live, we already have eternal life. So that's, that's really important, and that's central, I think, to this understanding of the perseverance of the saints. It's not just that God has promised to save us. That's true. But what it is is that the salvation in Christ that we are promised is already ours. It's not some inheritance that we will receive. There right. are definitely future elements to salvation. Right? There's a consummation and a culmination of salvation that we will enjoy on the last day and on into eternity. But the eschatology of the future is, you're exactly right, it's pulled forward in time and given to us now. Right. That's power, right? I mean, that's yeah. beautiful. And that's what I think is some of the, like, the practical outworkings. I, I'm glad also you were talking about covenant of grace because you know, I was thinking, you know, the Old Testament already basically gives us clearly states that the covenant of grace does not depend on the obedience of human beings. Right. I mean, it does carry with it an obligation to walk in the way of the covenant, but that covenant itself rests solely in God's compassion. So there's something that holds us there and it's not on our end. It's as if God like very lovingly and gently and yet legally binds himself to this obligation. Right. And so when you think about it that way, you almost want to say, why should we fear? I mean, if right. God is for us, who can be against us? I was thinking recently about this example that R.C. Sproul gives, and I think in his book, Everybody's or Everyone's a Theologian. And he talks about the difference between a circumstance in which if you were in an ice cream parlor and there was a little boy, have you heard this before? I have not, no. So this is a really beautiful illustration, I think. So he talks about if you were in an ice cream parlor or ice cream shop and there was this young boy and he purchases an ice cream cone, and when he goes to pay, he finds out he doesn't have enough money. And if you step forward, because you're behind him, and say, I'm, I'm willing to put forward the dollar, um, he makes the argument, the person, the cashier, would have to take that payment because it's legal tender in the US. There's no reason right. for him or her not to accept it. Now, if the situation were slightly different, and you were in the ice cream shop, and this boy comes in, and while somebody is in the back room, one of the employees, he sneaks around and starts to grab an ice cream cone, and then is caught, and you come forward and say, well, I'd like to pay for the ice cream cone. Now it's within the, the shop owner's right to reject that payment because right. a crime has been committed. And so it's within their right to press charges. And he makes this big point about basically through the covenant of grace, what God still says, even though we've wronged him, even though we're the one who've committed crimes against him, he's still willing to accept Jesus's payment on our behalf. Right. And that's a beautiful thing. He doesn't have to, like to your point, he's not obligated to, there's no magic here that says he must do these things because we've said a certain prayer or we've acted in a certain way, or even we've been contrite enough. And so there's something beautiful that God would engender himself to love us and not to press charges against us. And I think all of that is like wonderfully embedded in the covenant of grace as it gets worked out in the perseverance of the saints. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, 
you know, as you're thinking about that and we're talking about sort of this this legal reality that our our sins, that which condemns us, right? That which brings us to eternal death has already been resolved. We we live now under a new legal reality. In the same way, it's not as though that little boy who's buying the ice cream after you've paid for the ice cream, you know, he, he goes up to the counter, he doesn't have enough money, you pay for the ice cream. It's not as though after he eats the ice cream that the shop owner can go, wait a second, you didn't pay for that ice cream. Right. Because the ice cream has been paid for. The ice cream is that the, the, the fee for the ice cream is taken care of. And, you know, as you were talking about that, it reminds me of, I mean, Romans eight is the chapter on this, right? So I'm just going to read a little bit of this. I don't want to read the whole thing. I I mean, I want to read the whole thing, but me reading is not the best podcasting. So just starting in verse one, this is, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Boom. I mean, that's, that's perseverance of the saints right there. Even, even though we fail. And this is where I think we start to turn to the practical. Even though I fail to keep the law, even though I fail to live up to God's standard, because of what Christ has done for me and on my behalf, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So union with Christ is one of the things that roots our assurance, but it also roots our perseverance. So the only reason that I can know that I will persevere in the faith is because I am already united to Christ. As I said, I'm seated with him in the heavy places. Right on. Verse two, for the law of the spirit is life. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So right there, all of all of what we're talking about in perseverance is established, right? God accomplishes what we could not. And now we're under the law of the spirit, meaning not that it's some new law, not that the old law is abolished, that the 10 commandments don't apply all that new covenant stuff, new covenant theology as a discipline stuff. But the law of the spirit is now that we live in relation to the law of God in a different way. We no longer live under the condemnation of the law because the law has been fulfilled so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, not by us, but in us. Right. And it's fulfilled in us because now we walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. And right that's, that's really the hinge that the practicality of the perseverance of the saints walks on. It, we, you know, when Paul is trying to answer the charge of antinomianism, Right. He 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 knows people are going to ask him, well, since we're not up, we're not condemned by the law. Does that mean we can live any way we want to now? And what he says is not, oh, no, let me re-explain this to you and let me explain to you how the law actually still applies. His answer is basically along the lines of, are you out of your mind? You live according to the spirit now, not according to the flesh. So how can you possibly think that you can persist in sin if you live according to the spirit? That's nonsense. He, right. it, it's a very sort of. On one level, it's a counterintuitive response, but on another level, it makes all the sense in the world that if we now live in the freedom of the spirit, can those who lie, who are alive, can they live in the way of death any longer? Of course not. Right. Because the challenge there that Paul gives is basically, you're not even thinking right. 
You're not thinking in the right. correct terms. You're so far out of bounds. I'm just going to pick up because you started us off in Romans 8 and verse 39, or 38 and 39, because I think this continues to give it some practical legs. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I love this because I think when we think about perseverance, sometimes it's argued that Satan may be successful in separating the believer from God and his love, but Satan is a created thing. Right. And the promise is that no created thing will be successful in separating us. And then even beyond this, some will argue from time to time that even though the believer is safe from adversaries outside himself, he's not safe from destroying his own self. Right. But the believer is also a created thing. And the promise again is that no created thing will ever separate us from God. So that what a wonderful assurance here. Like yeah. when you are saved, you are saved and secure and there's nothing that can touch you. You yeah. can never go outside of God's control or his will. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for the practical side of things, right? I, Tulian Tavidian is obviously not someone I'm a huge fan of. And the things that he says, he says in ways that are wrong. He says things that are wrong, but he also says them in the wrong ways. And one of the things that I kind of ran into when the sort of the antinomianism of the Tulian controversy was coming up is that Kevin Labby, who was the pastor of the church that he went to after he left Coral Ridge, Kevin Labby says what it sounds like Tulian is trying to say, but he says it in an orthodox way. And what, what basically is being said is not that you're free to fail. It's that you're free to try and you don't have to fear the eternal consequences of failure because what Christ has done for us is secured our salvation. So now right. we can now we can reach, we can strive for holiness, knowing that we won't achieve it, but recognizing that ultimately we will be brought to holiness. Where right. Tulian goes off the rails is it turns into this antinomian language of you can you can fail and that's that's okay because Jesus loves you and died for you. Well, yeah, on a strict reading, that's true. If, if you're in Christ and you fail, then there are no eternal consequences. There's no permanent eternal consequence for that. But the, the fact is that we are now free to strive for holiness, knowing that ultimately we will reach the goal, not because of our own effort, not because of our own determination, but because Christ has accomplished it for us. And he, now it's just a matter of uh, him bringing us along and empowering us, progressively sanctifying us by his spirit to reach for and to achieve that goal. Not in a way that is meritorious or that brings us any credit, but we do we do persist in good works. That's why I think it's important right. to not to turn this into preservation of the saints in the way that some people do, is that our our persistence and our reaching for the goal is important. And that's that's all over the language of the Westminster Confession. Right, God actually uh, receives and rewards our good works because he is receiving and rewarding them in Christ. Right, that, and that's a good point because I think some of what happens with Tulian is he's dangerously close to either espousing laziness or rebelliousness by saying that. And right. I know that's not what he's trying to say, but that is the logical outworking because there are opponents of the perseverance of the saints that would say what this teaches is it's a license to sin with an open door to heaven. Exactly. And that's, he's coming very close to that line. Right. 
But since the Christian is born again by the Holy Spirit, he loves Jesus. And so he naturally wants to keep his commands. Yeah. The change of heart that the Holy Spirit makes in regeneration, as well as like the indwelling presence of the Spirit in the believer, ensures that the believer is going to continue to love Christ. And what that looks like is John 14, 15. If you love right. me, you obey my commandments. It, those things are always going to be bound in an unbreakable way. Yeah. So like obedience to God's commandments, obviously, are not done in this rubric in order to obtain salvation or even to maintain salvation for that matter, because sometimes we can fall into that rut. Right. But it's because because that would turn salvation, of course, by grace into salvation by works. Yeah. So that, that pitfall is everywhere. But I agree, we've got to understand that what's happening here is God is empowering us to run this race, but we have to get up in the morning and keep our legs moving. And right. that grind day to day is tough. So that's why I think it's good for us to be talking about this in a practical sense. Yeah. One of the analogies that I think is helpful, you know, scripture uses the analogy of a marriage between Christ and the church. And I think it's helpful for us to think about what changes between, you know, the morning of your wedding day and the evening of your wedding day in terms of the permanence and the stability of the relationship represented. So when you're dating a girl, or if you're a girl and you're dating a guy, you on some level have to recognize that like you could still screw it up and you could lose it. Right? right. If if you say something mean, even if even if you don't mean to, but you say something insensitive, that could legitimately be the end of the relationship. And that's built into the relationship. That escape hatch is part of the relationship. Once you're married, it's not the same thing. And so this this gets distorted in unhealthy ways where you hear about like, well, you know, when we were dating, he was so romantic. He bought me flowers and we went out for dinner and, and he, you know, he told me he loved me and all of this stuff. And now he just doesn't do that anymore. Well, on one level that is built into the relationship, right? It's built into the relationship that the things that you had to do to preserve and maintain the relationship when you were dating and to progress the relationship are no longer necessary in the same ways. Right. Where that gets corrupted by sin, of course, is that usually husbands, but not exclusively, usually husbands get lazy, right? They stop doing the things that they, they were supposed to do. They stop, they stop being the romantic guy. They stop buying flowers. They stop, you know, being, um, they, you know, they let their appearance go. These kinds of things happen because of the security of the relationship. And I think in, in our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with God, we let the same thing happen, right? We rest on the security and the permanence of the relationship, and we stop doing the things that we are supposed to be doing. And that's right. what we're trying to like push against is in a healthy marriage, you're not doing all the same things you were when you were dating, but you're still actively building the relationship. But the difference is that when I, you know, when I buy my wife flowers, right? I'm not doing it anymore in, in some misguided understanding that this is what's causing the relationship to succeed. I'm not doing it because I fear that the relationship might fall apart. I'm now doing it out of the love and the commitment that I have that's represented in this permanent lifelong commitment. And that's the way that our faith should be too, is that we don't operate out of a place of trying to build the relationship. We operate out of a stable loving relationship in which now we can strive to do the holy things that Christ has called us. Right. To. And that that's the key is that our relationship is secure. And so the reason that we do the good works that we do is out of gratefulness and love, not out of some fear of retribution. 
Right. And marriage causes a transmutation of affection and intimacy. Right. Such that now everyday things can be done with great love. So washing the dishes in a sacrificial way can be just as good and perhaps better as giving a girl flowers right. when you're dating her. And that's the whole point, right, that we're getting at is that you do these things under the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. Right. And that is, I think, the beauty of coming into a relationship with Christ. We've spoken so much about being in Christ. And so the beauty of that is that your relationship is able to go deeper. One, because it's in a place where it's safe and secure. Yeah. So you can do those things. And two, it's in a place where there's no longer a legal demand, the law, the cloud hanging over you saying you must do these things or fulfill these obligations in order to be in harmony. But now the identity of the relationship is secured. Right. And what we're able to focus on is the harmony of that relationship by loving and serving our God and those whom he's put in our sphere of influence. Right. Yeah, and that's so great. I mean, I think, you know, we wanted we want to land on the practical elements of the perseverance of the saints. And in one sense, like we're just circling around the same theme. Right. Because the the practicality of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is the practicality of the doctrine of covenant theology. It's that our salvation is secure in Christ. Full stop. So everything that we do from that point is secure in Christ. And this is this might be a little scandalous to people, but if I sin, I sin from a point of being secure in Christ. Now that's not something we want to do, but I don't have to fear that Christ is going to abandon me because I screw up. Right. And that's where the perseverance of the saints comes in. Now, it's important for us to remember that we can give ourselves false assurance. Right? We can convince ourselves that we're secure in Christ when we are, in fact, not secure in Christ. And that's a whole different conversation. The scripture gives us all sorts of ways to understand how do we know that we're in Christ. But by and large, a person who is genuinely in Christ is doing everything from a place of security in Christ. They do it from a place where there is now no condemnation for that person. So whether they succeed or fail... They are secure in Christ. Now, like I said, we can't let that we can't let ourselves fly off into Tulian Tavidian free to fail land. Because right. we're not free to fail, right? We don't have the freedom to sin. We don't have the freedom to fail. But in Christ, we are safe. You're safe from failure, which gives right. you the freedom to succeed, right? Yes. Yes. Are you ready for a tenuous metaphor? Yes, I'm always ready for a tenuous metaphor. I love <laughs> well, we've, those are the best kinds of metaphors. They're the are the only kind that are worthwhile. True story. We, we've already equated ice cream with sin, which true. I don't know how we feel about that. I mean, ice cream is delicious. I love ice cream. So my my wife has been watching a fair amount of Project Runway. Okay, and that means I've also been watching a fair amount of Project Runway. Yes, by association. And what you just said reminded me of on that particular show when, you know, if, for those who aren't familiar, it's a bunch of designers who get together, they're given a challenge, they actually have to make an article of clothing, and then it gets modeled and judged. And on that particular competition, once you win a competition, for the next one, you are free from being eliminated from the competition. Right. And so what that does is for that person who's won on the next challenge, they are actually free to explore a greater sense of creativity than they would have been if they didn't win because they know they're secure. They can't go home in that particular challenge. Right Now, it's not exactly the same thing, but what we're saying is by giving that freedom, that positional place where you're safe, 
I do, I'm with you. I don't like the freedom to fail language because it implies that we should go out and try to fail, but we should try to be as loving as possible. We should try to be as holy and as as focused on our piety as possible, knowing that there'll be times we just get it wrong or we get ourselves in a situation where we don't get it right. Yeah. But we're still safe and secure. And so we never have to worry that there is going to be judgment upon us because of the sins that we commit. Yeah. And I think one other thing too that we we should keep in mind is that Sometimes we feel like um, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints rests on the doctrine of the assurance of salvation, but it's actually flipped around the other, the other way. way around. Right. Yeah. So, so in the Westminster Confession, chapter seventeen is on the perseverance of the saints, and chapter eighteen is on the assurance of grace and salvation, and it's it's flipped around intentionally. It's not as though they just like ran the, the chapters of the Westminster Confession are not in random order. Right. They're developing a coherent system of doctrine and things build on each other in logical fashion. And so it's important for us to remember that the reason that we can be assured of salvation is because we are assured that we will persevere until the end. And so that's important for us as we read scripture, because one of the things that if you engage a Roman Catholic or an Armenian who wants to try to press you on this, they're going to point out to you that it is those who persevere until the end who are saved. And there's this hidden presupposition that it's possible not to persevere. But what that presupposition rests on is the idea that salvation is only ever provisional. Right? right. And so that's that's what we're trying to land on tonight. Like I said, we keep on circling around this thing because it, it's hard to talk about a really simple thing for an hour. And this is really straightforward, right? This is a really straightforward premise is that God has already accomplished our salvation. He's already applied it to us by the spirit. And now it's just a matter of walking within the context of that salvation. It's not it's not it's not obtaining salvation. And this is um where I actually agree with some of the critics of John Piper is this language of final salvation or this language of final or ultimate salvation is a little bit troublesome at times because as I've said, salvation is now it's not, it's not then it's now. And so the, the, the eschatological reality of the, the final verdict of salvation is already applied to us currently. So, as I've said, I've been a pretty staunch defender of Piper on this, that what he means is not anything that's unorthodox. He means something completely orthodox, but this is just underscores the importance of our language is that the idea that there's some future salvation waiting for us out there that has not yet come to us, that's not a biblical concept. Right. The idea that the, that our current salvation is progressing and will consummate and culminate, that's a biblical concept. And that's what Piper is trying to get at. But the idea that our salvation is now, that's what the Bible teaches. So right on. It, it's just really important that the Arminian, the Roman Catholic, in some senses, the Lutheran, they're all saying salvation, justification, all of the benefits of salvation are provisional. The Lutheran is saying you really concretely have them, but you may lose them. And so there you have them on a provisional basis. The Arminian is saying more or less, you don't really have them yet. You have to come into them, right? You're saved now in low, maybe like lowercase s, but you're not really saved until you cross that finish line. And the right. Roman Catholic is saying you're not even saved now. 
you're working towards salvation. And if, if you do enough good works and you er obtain enough merit, then you will cross the line and be finally declared just because you will be actually just. It's right. only the Reformed tradition that is saying, right now, 7.55 p.m. on August 5th, you are saved. You are saved. There's no ifs, there's no provision, there's no losing it, there's no failing to accomplish it. It is reality now. And that is the most practical element of the perseverance of the saints. Because what is more freeing than that reality? What is more liberating than that reality? Nothing. Nothing that I can think of. Right. I agree. And many will go to support that claim of provisional salvation to Hebrews 6. And we don't have time to get into that. But if anybody would like us to talk about that, just hit us up on the question cast. Yeah. We'd be happy to talk about that. But you're right, because I love how the order of the Westminster focuses on the fact that perseverance of the saints, that is the evidence of eternal security. Right. So the great truth of eternal security is actually based on even greater truth that God keeps us secure by keeping us believing. And that's also been freeing for me in a practical way, because it means I do not need to manufacture either the initial source or the continuing source of my faith or belief. That comes through God. Yeah. And so I don't have to try to conjure it up or pull up my socks and make it happen. It's also not the quality of faith. And, and I, that is so freeing too, because yeah. any person who's sensible, who's able to look at the world and has a good turn of mind, and is able to discern that the way things are from the way things appear to be, will say, you know, well, in life, it's not about quantity, it's about quality. Right. And that seems like a very wholesome and noble thing to say. But actually, in terms of understanding the perseverance of the, the saints and faith in particular, it's actually not biblical. And I love that Calvin says that unbelief is always mixed with faith in every Christian. Yeah. So it's not the quality of faith, but it's the object of our faith that justifies. So our faith is never perfect. We're always partly unbelievers in our fallen sinful constitution. Yeah. But the promise, the promise is solid and secure, but our apprehension of it varies because it's not about the size of the faith, it's about the size of the savior yeah and so that's what we get in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and that's like you said refreshing and freeing and it should hopefully lighten all of our burdens to know that one we do not have to bring our faith to the table either when we are first justified by god when we have that first love or when we try to return to that first love we don't have to manufacture it again yeah and that god is going to hold us safe and secure and that is what brings to us eternal security so that's what i think is the wonderful answer to that initial question how do we know that we're saved well the perseverance of the saints it gives us that sign toward that end yeah he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion amen i mean that's the war cry of the Christian is that I can be, I can be confident that whatever, whatever it means to reach the finish line, whatever that looks like. And it, it probably looks a little different for everybody. There's common things. And then there's things that are going to be unique to everybody, but whatever that means, I can be confident that God will finish a good work in me. And I can be confident because he began that good work in me. And what I think is really, you know, an interesting insight, you know, I just finished uh, when we were at the beach, I finished volume one of Gerhardus Foss's uh, Theology Proper, his, his systematic theology. Volume one was Theology Proper. And he talks a lot about how, and we talked about this a little bit when we did our episode on Providence. Providence is really just God's act of creation as it continues in time. So God creates and then he sustains that creation. And we have to separate those into distinct acts or distinct works because of the way our, our human creatureliness is. But in reality, what God starts in creation, 
he sustains through providence. And, and in salvation, it's the same thing. God works in the same way. When he starts in regeneration, he completes and sustains through justification and glor- and, and sanctification and will consummate in glorification. For and sure. so, so the same way that God creates and sustains all of creation, he recreates and sustains his new creatures in Christ. And for me, that's really important because the same way that I trust God that the world will keep on spinning tomorrow, that the atoms in my body are not going to lose cohesion and I'm going to disintegrate like at the end of Infinity War or something crazy like that. I can trust that my salvation is secure because the same God who is keeping every atom in its place is keeping me in my spiritual place because the spirit lives within me. And that's really important. In him, we live and move and have our being. That's not just a statement about creaturely existence. It's a statement about the fact that in Christ, we live and move and have our being. And in the Holy Spirit, we live and move and have our being, our salvation. So, you know, like I said, we've been repeating ourselves because this is a, this is a concept that is on one level so straightforward, but we miss it. We miss it so much because we lose sight of the fact that our Savior is a great and competent Savior who saves us to the uttermost. Right on. I mean, God never, ever delivers the baby to be left on the doorstep, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. His work is always what he begins, he always concludes. And so if he's begun that work in us, we can just be confident. And again, our faith will ebb and flow and our love of God will ebb and flow and it will come with maturity and immaturity. But the bottom line is all those whom he has called, he will save. And all those whom he has saved have a love for him. And that love should be something that we continue to, like you said, feed and want to grow. And there'll be times where we do not desire to be in the scriptures as we ought to be, but we ought to strive and work toward that working yeah. at our salvation, but we work it out because it's God who works in us to will and to work exactly. for his good pleasure. Yeah. I I could not agree more. I love how you always bring it back to the scripture, Jesse. Like the, the scripture <laughs> is just, it's just like on your lips and like, I'm, so I'm going to get you, a brother. little like retrospective here, but like, this is another element of like the blessing of growing up in a Christian household. Right? right. And that's part sure. of perseverance too, right? We have kids who grew up in Christian households. We should trust that the God will complete the good work in them as well. But this the scriptures just they need to just flow from our lips because that's where the words of life are. I agree. And I just love how it, you know, you always try to bring us back to the scriptures. Yeah. I mean, I would say if if you are not if anybody listening is not enjoying what they feel is a security and a peace with God, then you either have never trusted Christ or a dark cloud is just temporarily concealing the face of Christ yeah. from you. And in both cases, the Bible encourages the same thing. Consider Christ. Yep. And we really have to fix our minds on Christ. Remember that his righteousness may be ours freely through trusting him. And in our small faith, in our season of darkness, consider that God Almighty pledges in faithfulness to keep us and to bring us back to himself again and again until we are safe in heaven forever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good word for us to end on. So, Jesse, if someone wanted to get a hold of us because they want to ask a question about what we've said or they want to tell us how wrong we are about something, maybe it's a Lutheran who wants to object to my clumping them with the Roman Catholics and the Armenians, (laughs) how would they do that? 
What if it's a Lutheran wearing a deep V? You know, there are some hipster Lutherans out there. <laughs> the look on your face was so great just It's then. true. It's true. There are definitely some hipster Lutherans out there. Uh, well, if you're a hipster Lutheran and you disagree with us completely, or if you want to know about how we feel about Hebrews 6 after you look that up, the best way to get a hold of us and to ask a question is to leave a voicemail. And you can do that by calling 607-444-2767. Bros. That's the number. That's the number. Well, this has been a great episode, Jesse. I really appreciate this topic, and I'm I'm glad that we could bring this into the practical realm a little bit. So I, yeah, I'm, me too. I'm stoked to go out this week and just rest in Christ, and rest in Christ in a way that's not passive and it's not um, lazy, but rest in Christ in a way that I can run hard for the goal and yeah. trust that Christ Jesus will bring me to that goal because He has already claimed me. Right. Listen, it's like you won the last Project Runway Challenge. <laughs> and now <laughs> you can go out into the world. And of course, nobody, when they get to the next challenge, wants to fail. They want to do the best they possibly can. But right. sometimes you miss the mark. But you know you're not going to be sent home. Exactly. So go do that thing. Yes. Go do that thing like Project <laughs> Runway. Work. I'm sure that there's a Make huge, a huge number of people who listen to our show that love... <laughs> Project Runway. I'm sure that analogy just totally landed home. Uh, yeah, you could have gone with Survivor. You could have gone with like uh, Amazing Race, or even even like The Bachelor or Bachelorette. Probably has more people in our audience that watch it than Project Runway. There, I'm hoping those people are out there, those brothers and sisters. The problem is in my house. I don't know what happens. Whether Hulu or Netflix just dumps a whole season of that, and then all of a sudden that's like all. That is on our TV for whatever reason. Yeah. The good news, Jesse, is that you are secure in that you are my only <laughs> brother who wants to do a podcast. So even though your analogy missed the mark, you get to still we get to still do the podcast. I appreciate that covenant of grace. <laughs> yes. Which you've given me. All right. Well, we better uh, leave this behind us before our audience does not allow us to persevere as their podcast. Yes. Let's so, look ahead. Until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. Uh, what if I'm fine?